Well, the question that we're asking ourselves these days is, is this, what kind of heart should we as followers of Christ have? What kind of heart individually should we have, and what kind of heart as a church, collectively, should we have? <clears throat> you may remember at the beginning of May that I, I shared with you a question that I was having a hard time shaking. And the question came out of the fighter verses that we were memorizing at that time in Ephesians chapter 2. And it was this particular passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature <clears throat> children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And those last five words had me thinking over and over again, what about the rest? What about the rest? And the question, what kind of heart are we to have, really flowed out of that question. What about the rest? What kind of, what kind of heart should we as a church have toward the rest of mankind? And we looked through the lens of, of Abraham's call by God. We looked at the promise that was given to Abraham that, that uh, through his seed, the nations of the world would be blessed and that uh, his uh, descendants would be like the sand that he saw or like the stars innumerable in the sky. And we know that the seed that's being spoken about there is, is Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. And so through Abraham's line, the seed, Jesus Christ, came, and it is through what Christ has accomplished by his death and resurrection, and we see it all over the world today. The descendants, the children of Abraham, if you will, are multiplied in the millions upon millions of people. Now we're looking through the lens of David, and we're using Psalm 2 at the moment. You remember that the Bible refers to David as a as a man after God's heart. Well, what does it mean to be a man after God's heart? What does it mean to be a woman after God's heart? <clears throat> and we said several times, and I will say it probably a few more before we're done, at the very least, what it means is this, that we make God's priorities our priorities, that what is important to God becomes supremely important to me, that I engage with what God is concerned with and what God is doing. And let me share with you again my understanding of what, what I understand that God is doing, what God's priorities are. And I've said it to you, let me say it one more time. God's ultimate goal is this, that through the saving work of Jesus Christ and the agency of the Holy Spirit, God the Father is gathering a people to dwell among who will declare his praises, who will delight in the joy of his triune love and participate 
in the eternal plan of his ever-expanding glory and dominion. Now, last week, we looked at Psalm chapter 2, a psalm that is quoted or alluded to more times than any other psalm in the New Testament. It's over 18 times that this psalm is brought into play. You heard it in the reading from Hebrews this morning. The psalm's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that speaks of the king of Israel's coronation. There is a historical application of that psalm, as there is in all prophecies in the Old Testament. They all take place within a historical context and in some way speak to that historical context. But the prophetic edge of those psalms speak to Christ and the future. So you'll remember that the psalm opened, the opening verses last week described the animosity and the hatred that the surrounding nations had for the king of Israel and for the God of Israel. They were raging. Why do the nations rage? They were plotting. They were scheming. I was so intrigued. If you remember last week, I mentioned to you that many people believe that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually one psalm because the way that the Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the, the man, the way that Psalm 2 ends, blessed are the people who do such and such. And it talks about blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, stand in the way of sinners. And then Psalm 2 is asking the question, why do the nations rage? Why do they scoff? Why do they uh, uh, make fun of and, uh, and ridicule and mock the God of Israel? And the, the scripture in Psalm 1 talks about meditate, right? Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And then in Psalm 2, when it says the nations are raging, they are plotting, that word plotting is the same exact Hebrew word as in Psalm 1 for meditate. And so in, you have a contrast. You have what, someone who is meditating upon God's word and God's priorities and learning God's ways and learning to love God. And then you have those who are meditating on how they can hate God even more. And that is, a, and that is the soup we swim in these days. How can we hate God more? How can we mock Jesus Christ more? But their plotting is in vain. It's too late. The scripture says in Psalm 2 that he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. He laughs at their ridiculous notion that they are in some way a match for the God of Israel. And he holds them in derision. He scoffs at them. He, in a holy way, ridicules them. And uh, I, I love this, uh, this quote from uh, G. Campbell Morgan. He was talking about this laughter. And he said these words. He said, this derisive uh, or derisive laughter of God is the comfort of all those who love righteousness. It is the laughter, get this, it is the laughter of the might of 
of holiness. It is the laughter of the strength of love. God does not exalt over the sufferings of sinning men. He does hold in derision all the proud boasting and violence of such as seek to prevent the accomplishment of his will. And as God is speaking, he begins to speak to the people that are raging against him. And he says to them, it's too late. I have already appointed my anointed one. That, those words, anointed one, they're capitalized words. Anointed one is a messianic term. It's referring to not only David and his coronation, but referring to Jesus Christ prophetically. He says, I've already appointed my anointed king. He's already set up. You're too late. You can't undo my plan. You can't thwart what I'm going to do. While you've been over there plotting and scheming, I've installed my king. I've put my king in place. And you remember those lovely words of, uh, of, of Spurgeon's. I just, uh, I just loved it. God's anointed has been appointed and will not be disappointed. God's anointed has been appointed and will not be disappointed. That's true of Jesus Christ, and it's true of every one of us who are under the anointing of the Holy Spirit as well. We are appointed, we are anointed, and we will not be disappointed if we give our lives fully to Christ. Well, now what happens is a third speaker shows up. Uh, the, 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 the psalm begins basically with a narrator who is <clears throat> asking the question, why do the nations rage, etc.? And then we have God speaking to, his, to, to them and talking about how he has already thwarted their plans. And now a third speaker comes on the scene. And that speaker is the anointed one. It's David in this psalm. Or in our understanding, it is Jesus Christ. And so in, in verse 7, he says this. I will tell of the decree. I will tell of the decree. I will state the declaration of God's purpose. I will, I will state the declaration of God's victory in this place. And he says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, it's interesting that our fighter verse this week and next week are the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1, which was part of our scripture reading today. But look at this in your Bible if you haven't, don't have it open already. Open to Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, just remember that idea. The heir of all things is who? Jesus Christ. Abraham is not the heir of all things. Moses was not the heir of all things. David was not the heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. All things belong to Christ. All things will be summed up in Christ. And all things will give glory to Christ in the future. 
heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus existed before David. He existed before Moses. He existed before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He existed before the world was begun in triune community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in their loving relationship and out of which flowed creation. So through whom he also created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Remember the disciple that said, we want to see the Father. We want to see God. And Jesus said to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he is the exact representation of the Father's nature and character. He is the radiance of God's glory. And this Jesus also upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, memory verse stops at verse 4 over these two Sundays, but I want you to notice verse 5. Because the writer of Hebrews is communicating to us the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. Jesus is more supreme than anything and anybody. And he is trying to help us understand that. And so <clears throat> he's going to grab some Old Testament passages to make his point that Jesus is supreme. And so he grabs Psalm 2. In verse 5, he says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What's his point? Why is the writer of Hebrews bringing that in? Because God was not only saying that to David. He was saying it to David in the historical context of that moment. But there was something greater going on behind that and it was referencing the supremacy of Jesus Christ above every created thing. He's not only saying it to David. Jesus is superior to David. Jesus is superior to Moses and to Abraham and to every other created being. God was not saying this to an angelic being because Jesus is superior to every created being. In this psalm, God is speaking of David historically, but beyond that, he's speaking eternally of Jesus, the King of kings, the everlasting King. And so this king says, I will tell you who I am. I will tell you that God has appointed me. He has said, today I have begotten you. I have called you my son. And as the son, he is, remember earlier in Hebrews, he is the heir of all things. He is the eternal heir of all 
things. And so in verse 8, it becomes especially powerful to think of Jesus being the heir of all things because he says this, ask of me. Now, the, right, the speaker is quoting what God is saying. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. When the devil tempted Jesus after his baptism in the wilderness, he took him to a high place and he showed him, the Scripture says, all the kingdoms of the world. Satan said to Jesus, all of these I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And one of the interesting things to me always in that is that Jesus did not debate. He didn't argue. He didn't say, no, 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 it belongs to me. There's a reason he didn't argue. Because when Adam fell in the garden, when sin entered into the world, Adam's allegiance changed. Sin had dominion. Death entered the world and this world came under the control of principalities and powers of darkness. So when Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world, I don't think he's lying to him. Although that's what he normally does. But I don't think he's lying about it. I think he's <clears throat> legitimately offering something to Christ. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows that he has come to purchase redemption. Jesus knows that he has come to set the creation free. Creation was under the curse. Remember Romans chapter 8 and the whole world groans, waiting? Jesus came to break sin's dominion, to break Satan's dominion, over creation and over mankind. Jesus came to bring about a redemption that would set free the world to be able to come to Christ and to know the living God. And so he had no need to argue with the enemy at that point. The scriptures, even if after the resurrection of Jesus, referred to Satan as the God of this world. Not because he is ultimately God of this world in the legal sense, because that claim has been broken, but because men who continue to live in sin and rebellion to God are under his authority. What does it say in the scripture? He delivered us out of the domain of what? Out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his own dear son. There's no middle ground. You're in one place or the other. Before the resurrection, 
before the atoning death, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, men could only be in the kingdom of darkness. But now, because of Christ, we can be brought into the kingdom of his own dear son. And that kingdom will see its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes to make all things new. And so this, this little verse in the psalm, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your heritage. And think about it. At the time that God says this to David, the nations of the world at that point were pagan, idolaters. They weren't living under the, the, the reign of, of Jesus. They weren't glorifying God in their behavior and their practices. There was all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of false religions that were going on. Only within Israel was God being worshipped. And God says to David, more importantly, he says, to Jesus Christ prophetically, ask of me and I will give you the nations. When David heard that historically, he could only think about it in a very limited way because we only had limited information about how many nations there were and how big the world was. David might have thought about asking for some of the surrounding nations that he was aware of. But when God says to Jesus Christ, Son, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. I think Jesus, I imagine, however it happened, I just like to imagine Jesus before the Father saying, Okay, all right. I'll take Australia, I'll take Russia, I'll take Spain, I'll take France. I will take Iran, and I will take Iraq. I'll take both the Koreas. I want China, I want Canada, I want the United States, I want the United Kingdom, I want the United Arab Emirates, I want Syria. I, 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 I want the, uh, uh, Germany. I want, I, I, now I'll start repeating myself, but you get the point. <laughs> I think Jesus asked for every single nation because they all will be his inheritance. And one day, Revelation says that the kings of the earth bring the wealth of the nations into the new Jerusalem. There is a day coming when Jesus will see fully and finally the reward of his suffering as all nations bow, as every knee bows and proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. We'll, we'll read this over the next, uh, next week a little bit. David talking about the nations and all these wonderful ways. One of my favorite lines is when he says, all the families of the earth will come and bow before you, O God. That day is coming. That day is coming when we shall see those from every tribe, every nation, every tongue around the throne of God. And why will they be there? Because Jesus asked for them. Jesus asked for America. He asked 
for you. That's why you're here in this moment, because Jesus asked for you and brought you to himself. So let me ask you a question here. How can we participate? How can we participate in God's plan for bringing all the nations under the dominion of Jesus Christ, for the, for the working out of what he has promised our Lord Jesus? Do we have a participation in that? Do we have a responsibility in that? Well, let me suggest four ways very quickly that you can participate that you can participate in impacting the nations and being a part of bringing the nations to submission to Jesus Christ. And the first thing is this. Own it. Own this mantle. You say, well, I thought Jesus owns it all. Yes, he does. He is the heir of all things. Romans 8 16 and 17 says that you are co-heirs with Christ. You are co-heirs with Christ. Over the years, I've spoken to YWAM groups and other missionaries that were going out into the field, and I would say to them, when you go into the nation that God takes you to, do not be timid. Do not be fearful. Do not go in thinking that you are treading on someone else's property. It's your property. It's God's property. It's his nation. And Jesus is the heir of that nation. And you are a co-heir with Christ. So when you go into Thailand, Thailand belongs to you. Nepal belongs to you. The Middle East belongs to Jesus. And missionaries that go out into those places do not go as trespassers. They do not ultimately go as visitors. If they have their heart in the right place, they go as landlords. They go as those who understand this nation belongs to Christ, and I am a co-heir of this nation. Colombia belongs to Jesus Christ, and as a co-heir of Jesus, it belongs to us. Are you following what I'm saying there? This is why it's so important for us to take this seriously. Because it has been entrusted to you and to me. Jesus has asked for it. God has said, okay, you have obeyed me perfectly. You have purchased the redemption. I've raised you from the dead. You are now king of kings, lord of lords. You are supreme over all things. And guess what? You are seated with Christ, the scripture says, in the heavenly places, you belong to Jesus. You belong to him, and you are co-heirs with him. Are you awake this morning? You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And so the nations belong to us. We have to own it. You cannot give to missions thinking, oh, I, I'm just, I need to do something to help the poor missionary. No, you need to give to missions with this attitude. I am investing in recovering what belongs to us. I'm investing in recovering the people that belong to us. I'm investing in reclaiming ground that was taken by an interloper 
by a devil and we are saying, no, you cannot have it. It belongs to Christ and therefore it belongs to us and that's why we invest in it. So own it. Number two, dovetailing with that. Pray for missionaries and support missionaries. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, there's a section there. We'll refer to it a couple of times here. But Paul says, pray for us that a door may be opened. Pray for us that a door may be opened that we can share the gospel. Paul was always looking for the open door, the next nation, the next place that God was taking him to to preach the message of the gospel. And he says, pray that I will see, will see the next open door. But implicit in that idea of open doors, and you can see it throughout Paul's letters, that it takes investment to send those who go through the open doors. Thank God for people who go through the open doors. Thank God for Robert Yusey this morning, church planning in the Himalayas, up in, the, up in way out of the way places, working with local Christians there. Some of you remember, I think we mentioned it last week, maybe it was the week before last, that Robert, yeah, it was the week before last, that Robert uh, was working with churches, planting churches up in Nepal, and they were working in a place where people couldn't read. And so he, they were asking for help that they could get some um, uh, uh, audio Bibles that they could give to people. There were solar-powered audio Bibles that uh, people could take and they could hear the Word of God read. They'd bought <clears throat> about 15 of them or 10 of them and they'd given them to certain people in the village. They would take, they'd take them with them out in the fields where they're working and listen to the Bible while they're working. And Robert said, our goal is to provide 50 of these Bibles. They're $17 a piece. And our goal is to provide 50 of these Bibles for these churches and these villagers who so want to know God's Word but do not have the ability to read. And I mentioned that on a Sunday morning. I said, wouldn't it be great if we could do that? And somebody dropped $850 in the offering and said, this is for the audio Bibles. That's an investment. That's a person who understands investment. They saw something. They said, okay, here's this guy. He's going through that open door. We pray for open doors. He's going through the open door. He's investing the time and the energy to reach these people. They're building schools. They're building churches. They're doing this work. And he sends back home and says, we need audio Bibles. It's going to cost $850. And boom! God puts it upon someone's heart to take care of it like that. That's called investment. Pray and support. We give to missions. We give faithfully to missions. If there's one reason beyond salvation is that I would love to see our church grow and grow and grow is so that we can give more and more and more. We can invest more in the open doors that people are going through. Number three, you can sponsor. You can sponsor a child. 
You can make an impact on the nations. You can make an impact on the nations when you own the fact that the nations are yours. You can make an impact when you understand that we are to support and we are to pray earnestly for those in mission and invest in them. And you can make an impact in a nation by sponsoring underprivileged, hurting children in that said nation. And so we have put in front of you Colombia. There's 10 children we'd love to see sponsored there. Six of them have been sponsored already. Some of you might be thinking, okay, we're going to have a commercial for this every single week. No, not every week, but we will mention it. We will mention it because this is a way you can impact the nations. But you see, here's the thing. Don't take, don't take on a child out of charity. Don't take on a child out of, uh, oh, oh, we want to give something to uh, that poor person. No, 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 no. Own your inheritance. Own your inheritance. Columbia belongs to Jesus. Guacamayal belongs to Jesus. There are people coming to Jesus in that town, in that village, because people are investing in those who are walking through the open doors in that area. Is the table out front, uh, Fiona? There's a, there'll always be something out front. There's a table out front. If God puts it on your heart to support one of these kids, $30 a month, it is not, not much to ask at all. $30 a month, you can make an impact on a nation outside of yours by doing that. And then fourthly, watch and pray locally. Watch and pray locally. Why? Because the nations have come to us. The nations are here. They're all around us. We see it in restaurants. We see it in, in gas stations and 7-Elevens. We see it in, in, in workers and in factories and in fields. We see it in our schools. We see it in our medical professions. We see it all around us. The nations are here. They've come. There are many who are here for a short season. And then they go back. What a way to invest in our inheritance. By asking God, Lord, who can I impact that is not from this nation? Who have you brought to the U.S. so that they could be invested in with the gospel and sent back as an ambassador? Christ. That is happening all the time college campus ministries around the world invest in international students and those international students go back to their countries they go back to where they came from in the best possible way as ambassadors for Jesus Christ and so how can we participate in that way how can we interact with somebody, some family that is not from our neck of the woods? How can we invest in them? God, show us. Let me be watchful. Let me be praying about who that might be. That passage in Colossians again, Colossians 4, 2 through 5, when Paul says, pray for an open door. 
And then he says, make the best use of your time. And he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Pray that your speech may be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you can answer people. He's he's saying, let's pray not only for the open doors there, but let's pray for the open doors here. Let's pray for the open doors here. Own your inheritance. Own it. Change your thinking about this world. Own your inheritance. Support and pray for those who are walking through open doors of international ministry. Consider sponsoring a child who we can tell you from firsthand experience is being told about the love of Christ and brought up in the love of Christ. And watch and pray locally. What is God doing here? What is God doing in my neighborhood? Who should I be looking at and saying, there's a place for my investment?